we began um, a study last week on the, the state of the church, and um, I mean, we're in, we're in between studies. We're going to be eventually getting the First Peter, but um, wanted to take some time to address something to the church as a whole, and really just looking at not only our church, but and not only the church in the really across America, but just looking at the church as it's here and. In the, the Bible, the pastoral letters is, is what we're really focusing on. But I hope you've noticed, and some of you I talked to you about this and, and you did, but, but I hope you noticed that there's really not a lot different between our church now and the church that Timothy was pastoring and the church that Titus was pastoring. And I mean, these issues that they were working through and that they were having to address not a whole lot different than us, and, and, I, and I think that's because you still have sinners, right? They were sinners back then, and we're sinners now, and we haven't graduated to the next level of sinner, you know, living. I mean, it's just, we just kind of, I don't know if you noticed, that we just kind of hit the repeat button over and over and over and over and over. And you do know that because you hear the story of your grandparents and your grandparents' parents and so forth. And you'll notice that it's not only do you hear the stories about, you know, the good things. You'll hear the bad things too. And, you, and, and maybe you're drawn to thinking, man, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm similar. There's similarities. And there is in every age really because we deal with this thing called sin, and it has been here since the beginning, that is, of the fall, there there in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I mentioned last time that I believe that the church today is vulnerable. Now, when I say that, I don't mean vulnerable in a way where she can be defeated. The true church will always remain. And let me make sure that that's very clear. Jesus said in Matthew 16 16, that not even the gates of hell can defeat her. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Whoa. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And that word you there is a plural word. He is talking to the whole church. In other words, it's true that the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but it is also true that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit as well. He says that to a church. He means that the true church of God is the temple of God. In other words, God will always look out for his true church. He says, if you try to destroy the church, he will set his aim at destroying you. He protects her. He promises to retaliate against all enemies of the true church, you see. And in a sense, that's it's scary, but in another sense, it's comforting, to, isn't it? I mean, don't you feel comforted when you know that you have a dad who stands at the doorway of any enemy that would come through, that, through those doors? Sure. So when I say that she is in a vulnerable place, what I mean by that is that today, more than ever, She is open to attack. We don't know who the true ones are. But but the Lord does. And those are the ones he will protect. Today the church is open to friction and pressure and suffering and trial. Attacks that will come from Satan through the world. He uses the world, by the way, to attack the true church. You really need to understand that. His attacks come to you by means of the world. In the world, Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 10, the, the world has a message. In fact, there's many messages. And it's trying to pump those messages out to you as fast and as hard and as subtle as it can. 
how does Satan use the world to attack the true church? You can look many ways throughout the church's history, but as I was looking over the pastoral letters that Paul wrote to two pastors that he trained, Timothy and Titus, I noticed seven challengers to the church back then, and we went over them last time, and so if you are interested in that, then you can go back and listen. It's online, okay? I'm not going to go back over that, but we, we, but it was important. What I wanted to do is to show you that the reason why Paul says the things that he says in these letters is because he was combating the, the, that attack, those attackers. In other words, like Ephesians 6 says, there's a time for the church to go on the offense. And I suppose if you really want to make it, kind of come right out with it, that's what I'm after. That's what this series is, really is about, is I'm trying to help us as a church how to be equipped on going on onto the attack. We can't just be in the defense position all the time. I remember uh, when... Our son was first starting to learn how to wrestle. And that was painful for both of us, the family and him. And I always felt bad for him because he was, let's just say he was in the defense position a whole lot as he was learning how to do that thing. And so we were always trying to tell him, hey, get off of your back. He said, I think you got to turn over. I don't know how to do that, really. I mean, I've, you know, keep going, son, you know. There are times we cannot spend our whole time on the mat on our backs. We have to be in the offensive position. We have to be ready to be that way. Now, I noticed, so I noticed with these seven challengers that Paul gave some pointed encouragement to both men, Timothy and Titus, on how to strengthen the church against those attacks. I suppose if you wanted to give another title to this series, it would be Fortifying the Church. That's what we're doing. Fortifying the Church. Now there are two areas that the church needs to be fortified in to be able to withstand attack and to be able to go on the offensive. First, you need to remember how the gospel works. Second, Remember then how the church works, how the gospel works, how the church works. In other words, the Lord's plan for the gospel. And then remember the Lord's plan for the church. And we don't just come here to just sit and hear, maybe eat a little food. We'll do that later on. Amen. But you know, it's not just that. There are things that we should be committed to doing, right? Things that we should be all about. And so we're going to learn a bit about that next Lord's Day. But this morning, we're going to focus on the first one. In other words, how we got into the church, and then the second one, what the church should preoccupy herself with while the world slanders it. So the first one, the gospel we believe the second one, the activities we should be doing, the function, the principles that got us here in the first place, and then the practice. Started the first one last week, and I'd like to finish it this morning. The doctrines of grace, the gospel of sovereign grace. Now, it's very important that we understand how the gospel works. Listen, it's not some easy decisionalism. The gospel doesn't work this way where we give you, spit out a few facts and we say, hey, raise your hand if anybody would like to, to believe that, to go that direction, to make a decision for the Lord as though he's, you know, anxiously waiting who's going to win the vote. It's not how it works for him. The gospel doesn't work that way. It's not like joining a club. We have to see things from God's side as much as we can. 
Because I think if we see things from God's side, then we will know how to come under that. We will know how to pray. We will know how to communicate to our children and how to communicate to our neighbors and how to live life, really. Now, to start things off, coming back to this, I wanted to quote from John Murray. Now, John Murray is, a, is a, an incredible Scottish theologian and pastor who lived from 1898 to, to 1975. And he taught at Princeton, and then he helped start Westminster Theological Seminary. And he was just a tremendous Presbyterian minister as well. And and this comes from his very important work called Redemption Accomplished, Redemption Applied. Uh, it's an incredible book. So if you have a chance to read that, I encourage you to read it. It's not a, it's not a very big book either. He says this, listen, quote, With all these considerations in view... The order in the application of redemption is found to be calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. When this order is carefully weighed, we find that there is a logic which evinces and brings into clear Focus, excuse me, clear focus, the governing principle of salvation in all of its aspects. The grace of God in its sovereignty and efficacy, end quote. In other words, he says there is, I know that's a mouthful, but let me explain. He says there's an order that the gospel comes and gets activated in us. There's an order. This is the simple version. There's a logical order of things that happen when a person is saved. Let me say it this way. Our salvation has a logic to it. Maybe say it even a different, another way. Our salvation has a direction that is built into it from the start. It has a direction. And there are things that are connected, that he connects us with. Now, these are the things that God does in saving us. And I want you to think about each one that Mary refers to. Let me go through them. Calling. This first one, he, he says, first, there's calling. Now, that's God's work. Calling is God's work to open your eyes on the inside of your heart. It is God's work to open. It is to open you, to, to get you to hear. It is his work to get you to respond to the gospel that was shared with you. Now, of course, a gospel has to be shared. You have to hear. It has to come with content. Nobody is saved on their, uh, you know, on their beds at hearing nothing. Nobody just wakes up and decides, you know what? This, I don't know. I've never heard anything about God, but I think I, I want it. I want him. It doesn't happen that way. Now, you might call this the voice of the gospel inside you. That's called, that's called calling. Then comes regeneration. That's the second word he gave us, regeneration. Regeneration, this is the logic here. This is the second thing, God's work to make you born again. That is to open your eyes. Now, listen, to make you see. Calling is you hearing his voice. Regeneration is you seeing now. I once was blind, now I what? I Now I see. Ephesians 2, you've been made alive, it says. You've come to life. In calling and in regeneration... You know, you can't explain why you love God. You, you can't explain why you love His Word. Why do you love His Word? There's so many voices out there. There's so many books. There's so many uh, places for wisdom. Why, why the Word? Because it's obvious to us. Because our eyes are open. 
We see it. Why do you want to do what God says? Why can you see your sin now? There's clarity. That's regeneration. And Titus 3 says that's a work by the Holy Spirit inside of you. See. Then there's faith and repentance. This is what comes next. Again, this is God's work that he does. And he produces this. He makes this happen. This is man's response to God's work on the inside. Listen, God opens your ears. He opens your eyes. And then you respond with faith and repentance. Repentance is the negative side. Faith is the positive side. Repentance is you turning away from your sin. Faith is you trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says, by the way, that both faith and repentance are gifts from God. You catch that? Both of them. Both of them it describes to God as a gift. And so even that isn't something that you mustered up. You remember Paul in First Timothy 1 last week, verse 14? Faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, it is the gift of God, it says. Now, faith and repentance to me is the duh moment for the sinner, okay? It really is. This is the, of course, that's what I'm going to do. You know, this is, uh, it's so obvious. That's why we don't call it a choice. I mean, yes, you have to respond. You have to believe. You have to repent. But I suppose maybe if I could say it this way. Before the Lord opened your eyes, before he opened your ears and made you to see, life for you was like a big test. And when you got the test and you opened it and you looked at it, you saw all these, it was a multiple choice, and you saw all these things. All right, so I, I guess I could be this kind of person. A here is... Go be religious. All right, there's that option. B, I could live for myself and kind of do my thing. And C, maybe I can go do a combination of that as I do some things and I don't have to go to church, but I'm nice to people and all that kind of stuff. There are all these options. That's your test. It's what it looks like. And you go around telling people that. You go around saying, well, you know, there's lots of ways to get to God and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, let's not be judgmental and let's not come down on people. But then regeneration comes calling, regeneration, and your eyes are open. And you go back to that test and you notice something. Wait a minute. There's only, why do I now only see one answer? Why is it, why does it seem like there's only one that's obvious here? There's not lots of them, there's just one. That's faith and repentance. You repent and you believe because you know that's, that's what you must do in your heart. You know that. You must do that. You respond that way. You have to believe. You have to repent. Because your eyes are open, what used to look like a multiple choice test now has only one option to your eyes. There's only A on this test. And that's all you see because it's the only thing that makes sense to you now. And maybe somebody might say, well, what if something comes around and and you decide to depart from the faith and everything? Listen, then you never were really his in the first place. Your eyes never were really open. We'll get to that. Then there's justification. Murray says that's the next thing. And that's God legally declaring you accepted. This is God declaring you righteous, declaring you forgiven and right. Forgiven and right. He doesn't sweep your sins under the rug. You ever want that? Sure, we all have. Oh, man. Can you just look the other way on this one? 
Oh, if only they could, if only there was a divine broom, they could sweep all the muck, you know, under the rug. God doesn't clean your life like you clean your room, right? No, no. He does it differently. Listen, he declares you forgiven him right. That's all that matters, right? I mean, does God say I'm right? That's really what matters. I mean, if he does, then that's all that matters. I mean, why, why, by the way, why would God ever say a person is righteous? I mean, we're, we're sinners, so how can God say anyone is righteous? I'll tell you how and why. Because Jesus Christ is our substitute. He took our place. He took all our sins on the cross, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. So listen, he earned our righteousness. It's not even your righteousness. He earned it for you. And what God does when you believe is that he imputes or credits the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. Paid in full. That's justification. The next thing that happened at salvation is, Murray says, is called adoption. Adoption. What happens next? That's God saying, welcome to the family. Why? You're now a son. You're now a daughter. The only name, beloved, that matters now is Christian. Belonging to the Christ family. The next thing that's on there is sanctification. Sanctification. Now there are three ways to look at sanctification. It happened, it's happening, and it will happen. Say what? Sanctification is the work of God to separate you from your sins and make you holy. Now, it happened. That's position. It's happening now. That's in practice. And so, the very first thing that he did in sanctification is to make sure that the penalty of sin is covered for you. In other words, the penalty was, if you're a sinner, you're going to be punished for it and go to hell. But if Christ took that for you, then he took your penalty. That's good. But then there's the middle part, the power. That's so that you can live today and live a life that pleases him, live a life that's holy. That's the life that pleases him. You don't always, do you? So you sin, and you come back, you say, Lord, forgive me. And he says, well, I've already done that on the cross. I know, but I just am coming back to you because I just want to thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. And he says, go live in the power of the cross. Okay, that's sanctification. And then there's being saved, being sanctified in the, from the standpoint that you're someday going to be set apart from the presence of sin. Now, at salvation, he made you pure, and he did that in position. But listen, at salvation, he also did that by direction. You have as much holiness as you can ever have in Christ. Why? Because he is holy. But there is also a change of direction. Your new direction is towards holiness, towards obeying God. This is God making you look like Jesus Christ. So this is the work of God to change the direction of your life. Then there's perseverance. He says there's perseverance. What is perseverance? That's the work of God at salvation to make you last. God built into that salvation what it takes to get you to the finish line. And that's amazing. And then finally, the last part to the order of your salvation, glorification. And that's God's work to get you to glory in heaven. Second Corinthians 3 says that our life now on this earth is going from one level of glory to another level of glory not reflecting our own glory, but God's glory. And someday that glory will be in perfection. 
What does God's glory look like? Jesus Christ. John 1, that's why he came. And we beheld his glory. You say, why are you telling us all of this? Listen, to show you that there's logic to this. I mean, it's been God's answer from day one. It's been God's answer throughout all of history. And it is airtight. And God does all of that by His grace. Sovereign grace. Ephesians 1, not that we would do it to get credit for it, not to the praise and the glory of you for some amazing thing that you did, but to the praise and glory of Him and His grace. That's what it says. And that is the encouragement that Timothy and Titus needed when facing all those challengers to the church. And it's what you and I need. We've got to come back to this and remember what God is doing, what He did. It's how we face any attack to the church. It's how we fortify ourselves. So let's turn back to the pastoral letters if you're not there. Paul to Timothy and Titus, two men that he trained up for the ministry. We need to remember how the gospel of sovereign grace works. Point number one, the requirement for the gospel. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need a gospel of sovereign grace? Listen, because without it, there's no way that we would become a Christian. None. I mean, we would never choose the Lord apart from a sovereign grace gospel. You say, how can I say that? Because of the truth about total depravity, that's all. And you know it to be true. The truth about total depravity requires a sovereign grace gospel. Remember what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1? He gives his testimony of how he became a Christian. And and how did it happen? Verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. God needed to act out of his sovereign grace. Why? Verse 15, look at it for yourself. 1 Timothy 1.15, because he, that is Paul says this about himself, is the foremost of all sinners. And that word foremost means chief. He is the chief of all sinners. You say, how can Paul say that? Because he understands that even his best deeds are full of sin. Full of sin. Even the best. Like what kind of sin? Self-righteousness. Self-love. Self-glory. You see the problem? Paul told the church at Rome, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To, to the ungodly? But isn't God going to hail the, the good ones? Isn't he going to make a parade for the, the ones that were, you know, worthy? No. He doesn't justify them. He justifies the ungodly. He said, well, then I qualify. That's right. And that's the point. God justifies the ungodly. You see, most of us live, before we become a Christian, we live with this system, that God justifies the good ones, the the ones that prove themselves, that they are good enough, that they are not perfect, but yet they try, and they have good intentions, and so therefore God should say, okay, good enough, come on in. Here's a hug. Welcome. Let's go. That's not how it works. That's not what Romans 4, 5 says. It says in Romans 4, 5 that God saves the ungodly. God saves sinners. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. That's what Paul says. Once I realized that that was me, that God saved me. The doctrines of grace start with this truth, that everyone is totally depraved. And by the way, it's why in Romans 3.23 he says, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason why he says all have sinned is what he's saying is we're all in the same place. We're all, it's a, it's the great leveling thought. We're all at the same place. God doesn't look at you and me before salvation and say, well, he's a better sinner than you. I don't even know what that means, right? Better sinner? Huh. Right? He did it well? I don't know. You did it less? Not sure. Romans 4, 5 means that we have an inability to choose God, even our own wills. Listen, yes, they are free. But listen to this here. But because Romans 3 says there is no one who does God's kind of good because that is true in your own will. You never choose God's way for your life. Never. Never. It makes no sense to you. Doesn't taste good. And so if you have no interest in God, if you have no ability, no power to save yourself, to choose Him, to seek Him, to love Him, to get rid of your blindness, how do you get there? Seems hopeless. Seems impossible. It does. And so point number two, we have the freeness of the gospel. The freeness of the gospel. Now this is the point we ended with last time. So let's take a look at it again in 2 Timothy. And it's chapter 1 verse 9. And by freeness of the gospel, we mean unconditional election. God is free to choose whom he wants to save. It is not based on man's free will. It is based on God's free will. Can I say that again? Salvation is not based on man's free will. It is based on God's free will. Listen, it can't be both. There's only room for one sovereign. One wins out. If man's will wins out, if salvation is based on man's free will, then man is sovereign over God. If salvation is based on God's free will, then God is sovereign over man. See, and I ask you, which one do you want it to be? If it's you and your will, then you have a message to preach about whom? Not God, but you. Paul understood this. In fact, this is how you strengthen the church. He tells Timothy, make sure the church understands that God has always had a plan for saving souls. And he started that plan before the foundation of the world was made. Make sure they understand this. You say, are you sure that's what he was telling Timothy to do? Yeah, look at 2 Timothy 1.9. The gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he which was granted us, oh, this is good, God granted us grace at salvation, oh, wonderful, in Christ Jesus, when did he do this? From all eternity. And you remember I told you last time, that phrase literally should say, before times eternal. Before time began, in eternity, before there was time. Now I gotta tell you, I'm about ready to share some things with you that are unbelievable. And I'll tell you, you look at your Bibles to see if this is so. Don't just take my word for what I'm about to tell you. Look and see if I'm telling the truth when I tell you what I'm about to tell you. That's when God decided to grant us grace to save us before times eternal. There was no one around to get an opinion from. There was no free will from man because there was no man to exercise it. In fact, 
If you want a glimpse into what took place when God decided who would get this grace, turn to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to show you something. And what you're going to see here is that Paul has the same message to Titus as Timothy. It's, it's how he wants them to strengthen their churches. And you can see this right from the get-go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Oh, there it is. Chosen. In the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. So Paul says he's writing this letter for the chosen of God, okay? Who is that? Christians. Look at verse 2. It's the ones that have eternal life, in the hope of eternal life. Which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And this is the same line. Literally the same Greek here. He says... God who cannot lie promised before times eternal. Now let's work this backward. I want to work backward. Titus 1-2, backwards. God promised something before times eternal. Before there was time. Listen, somewhere in the part of eternity that existed before there was time, before there was a time element. I mean, that means before creation, okay? We could, because that's about as far as we can go, right? Our brains begin to explode when we go before that, right? So we just stop right there. Before that. Now let me ask this question. When you make a promise, you're not making a promise to yourself, right? I suppose you could, but that's not how God doesn't talk to himself. He doesn't need to. The very fact that he made a promise tells me there's somebody else. Because that's what you do. You make promises to other people. Now who did God make that promise to? He said, well, maybe he made it to people. Well, there were, there were no people before times eternal. Maybe he was making that promise to people uh, that weren't here yet. So he was talking to, like kids do, like pretending, talking to imaginary figures. Nope. No. That doesn't make sense. There is something that this is, just tells us profound. I mean, there has to be... There has to be more than one of them if there's a promise made before time. That tells me that the Trinity exists. God is triune. He's making promises. God made a promise to God. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. So God made a promise to the two members of the Trinity. Listen, we are, it's like we're um, being invited into a discussion that took place before time, before eternity. Say, you want to listen? Put your ear to the door. It's almost, you know, it's kind of like sometimes you read Christmas Carol or maybe if you've seen the film adaptations where he kind of is let into seeing, you know, what took place. Remember when you kind of get that visual, that picture, and you're kind of sitting in on a discussion that you're not there for. It already took place. This is Titus 1, 2. It says, notice, who cannot lie. In other words, this promise might be hard to believe, so he has to tell us God doesn't lie. I mean, he really did make this promise. Now, what did he promise to the two two members of the Trinity? It says here, the hope of eternal life. He promised that there would be a people that would receive eternal life. Why would any person need to receive eternal life? 
that must mean that God was going to make people and at some point something would happen when those people needed eternal life. Something that they did not have. Now, if you don't have eternal life, what do you have? Death, right? Eternal death. The opposite of that. So, God made a promise to the members of the Trinity. And he doesn't lie. That he was going to rescue Grant eternal life to a people that had eternal death. Okay? What is this promise? This is unbelievable. God the Father makes a promise. He would give eternal life to a people that are sunk in eternal death. How will that promise get fulfilled of eternal life? Verse 1, the knowledge of the truth according to godliness. They will get a message of truth that places them into godliness. What godliness? A life that looks like God in character, in creed, in conduct. Now, Is that for everyone? Is that for all people sunk in eternal death? No, what does verse 1 say? It is for the chosen. Who's that? Elect people. People that God chose and is revealing that plan to the two members of the Trinity. They they make a, a promise at this time. And so really... Life is the giant history of God keeping that promise made at that time. See, I don't know about you. That's why it says it would be hard to believe, hard to receive, blows your mind. It does me too, but it makes me, makes me just want to know more. I hope it does you too. How does all this come to happen? By means of the gospel. Because Jesus Christ accomplished that. So when we say that God is free to have a gospel like this, what we mean is that it is tied to his plan. I mean... And we needed a plan like that to exist because we're totally depraved, right? We're unable to get to God. And that's what's behind 2 Timothy 2.10. Look at chapter 2, verse 10 there in 2 Timothy. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. You see it? It's just amazing. You're not here by accident. This is not a coincidence. Now part of why some struggle with this point is because we start with man. We start with our will and our choice and what we think is fair. You know, it's like thinking the earth is the center of the universe until we find out that the real center is what? The sun. That just... Galileo came around, that just kind of blew all their minds so much so that they first called him a heretic. Say, this guy's a heretic. How can you say that? But I love the analogy and I love the picture because that's just what we need. And I tell you, I can remember the time when I've, you know, I always, most of my life had thought I was very man-centered I had choices. I did things. It was all me, me, me. And then you, like Galileo, get to get the telescope of God's Word that takes you deep into what is really happening. And you realize, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not the center of living? God is? Oh, yeah. And He has a plan. And he's accomplishing it. 
And nothing can thwart that plan. It's incredible. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6.37. I'm just telling you a little bit about this plan. Just a little. Um, And I'm trying to keep it, you know, short. (laughs) John 6.37, all that the Father gives me, Jesus said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. There is so much profundity to that. I mean, all that the Father gives me. Okay, the Father is giving certain ones to the Son. Who are they? He doesn't tell us. Okay, he's got them. He must have a number. He must have a group of people in mind. Yep, he's giving them. Yep, they're gifts. Yep, Father's power. Yeah, his work. Yeah, his mind. Yes, all of that. You know what? And then there's the love of of Christ. I'm not going to cast them out. He gives them to me. I I make sure they get saved. You see the picture? I mean, the Father has certain ones that He gives to the Son. What's the Son do? He saves them. Does He have any others? No. His mission is to seek and save the lost. You say, well, who are they? They are his sheep that hear his voice. Who's that? The ones that the Father has given to the Son. Verse 38 makes it even more clear. For I have come down from heaven. Who can, By the way, who can say that? Can anybody say that? I have come down from heaven. No. I mean, Jesus is it. I mean, you, okay, you can stop right there. Whoa, you've come down from heaven. That's profound. He says, but I, I'm here. To, I want to tell you more. I have come down from heaven. He says, not to do my own will, but the will of him. That tells me there's a plan. The will of him who sent me. What's his will? To save all the ones I have given you, the the Son says, of the Father. Save all the ones that the Father has given to the Son. Where did you learn about this plan? Titus 1. Before time's eternal. And now it's go time. And he's doing it. Jesus told his, his disciples in John fifteen sixteen, And I love that he does stuff like this because I know he knows how we think because we're struggling. Did he, does he really mean that? Can he really mean that? Does he really mean that he chose us and we didn't choose him? I don't know. Does he really mean that? John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. He knows how we're thinking. He knows how we would struggle. And appointed you that you would go and bear much fruit and your, your fruit will remain. Jesus, you make it sound like you had this great plan and it's working out just as you planned. That's right. And you want us to be a part of that plan. That's right. I mean, over and over and over. First John 4, he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Or Acts thirteen forty eight. when the Gentiles heard this, Heard Paul's preaching. Heard Paul quote Isaiah 49.6 where it says God wills to bring salvation to the end of the earth. That's all they needed to hear. And when they heard that, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Again, do you really mean that? People that have been appointed to eternal life? You make it sound like he chose people before the foundation of the world to be saved. Uh Uh-huh. That's hard to believe. That's right. And you know what? It says they glorified him and rejoiced because of that. Why do we have to be intimidated by all those that are clamoring for free will and, oh, I chose him. Listen. I'm joining these people here at Acts 13. They rejoice. I rejoice. Let's have joy. God-centered. 
The gospel is free in this sense, beloved, that God has a will to save whom he wants to save. Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You know, he could have let everyone just go their own way in their own will. Do you know where your free will would take you? Let me help you. Your free will would take you on this path, Ephesians 2 says. It would, it would cause you to follow after your own lusts. Do you realize that you do what you want to do? You know that? Say, no, I spent a lot of my life not doing what I want. No, that's not true. That is not true. You do what you want to do. And before God saved you, what you wanted to do was please yourself. That's what Ephesians 2 says. And if you continue going on a path following after your lust, you know where that would take you? Right into hell judgment. But because he is gracious, because he is loving, because he is merciful and full of compassion, he appointed some to eternal life. It's good. It's interesting to me the word of Romans 8.28 where it says, for those whom he foreknew, it tells us this very thing, that predestination or foreknowledge means this. The word literally means this. It is a predetermined love relationship. That's what the word foreknew means. A predetermined love relationship. It has the same root as in Genesis when it says that Adam knew his wife. Or in uh, Matthew one twenty five, when it says that Joseph was not knowing Mary until she gave birth to his son Jesus. And that knowing is the idea of sexually knowing a person. Intimacy is what it's talking about. God planned an intimacy with certain ones before time began. And so election is the love plan of God to save certain ones. Who doesn't want that? Now, as you're where you're at, you're saying to yourself, well, what is the guarantee This plan will really happen. Let me give you the next point. Point number three, the success of the gospel. The success of the gospel. Turn back to 1 Timothy 2. This is the point sometimes called limited atonement. This has to do with the all passages in the Bible or or the whole world passages. Okay? And we're not going to go through all of them. But if you look at 1 Timothy 2, there in the first couple of verses he says, I heard you pray for... All the leaders, the political leaders and all those people, you say, oh yeah, we need to pray for them. I mean, we need to get them to change. No, no, no. He says, pray for their salvation. He didn't say pray for their politics. Pray for their salvation. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Never forget God's a Savior. Here it comes. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, wait a minute. God desires all men to be saved. Every single one of them. I mean, doesn't that imply that God can want something that might not happen? I'll explain here. Verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In other words, the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time, and then later in chapter 4, verse 10, for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. You say, of all men, is that universal salvation? No. Now, all is not that hard to understand, right? I mean, it's all men. Now, let me help you this way, and I will give you a a resource to kind of, if you want to go and read 
for yourself that would be really helpful. John Piper, well, there's a couple of resources. You can read John Owen's The Death of Death, which is the, the most uh, comprehensive and complicated read you'll ever have in your whole life. And so that's hard. I'll give you the easier one. Or you can just go read John Piper's book. Actually, it's a, it, uh, it, it, not a book. It's an excerpt in a book, a chapter in a book called Still Sovereign. He wrote, there's a book called Still Sovereign that was written by a bunch of different people. But in that book, there's a chapter titled, Are There Two Wills with God? Super helpful chapter. And his answer is yes. God can will for all to be saved. That is out of his compassion for sinning people that do bad, that do evil. He can will for good and mercy to come to them. He can do that. And we see Jesus in Matthew 9 and Matthew 23 grieving over the many that were sheep without a shepherd rejecting him as Savior. The very many and so many of them were going to go to hell. And he grieved over that. And he willed that they would all be saved. So that is a will connected to what I would say is emotion. What you might call the emotive will of God. But there's also a greater will connected to his decrees. And when we say the success of the gospel, what we mean is that when Jesus died on the cross, that he really did accomplish something. In other words, when he died on the cross, he didn't make salvation potential. He didn't make salvation possible. He made it actual. Our Lord does not have a high winning percentage. He has a perfect winning percentage. Understand that? He's not good at saving people. He's perfect at saving people. The cross is not a work to make salvation possible for someone. The cross is the work that guarantees 100% success. In other words, it guarantees all those ones that the Father gave to Jesus would be saved. That's the reason why in John 6, he says, none of them will be lost. I will raise every single one up on the last day. That's why he says that. Sometimes we call this particular redemption that Jesus died for particular people. What people? The elect from before the foundation of the world. Now there are only two choices when it comes to the death of Christ and the application of his death. That salvation is, either salvation is universal or it is for the elect. Either everybody gets saved or it is that the elect get saved. Clearly not everyone is saved because not everyone believes. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7 said the gate is narrow and few there are that find it, he said. Lord, Lord, and so many are even going to say to him, there's even going to be people that say, Lord, Lord, to him when they die and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you, so not everyone is saved. And there are going to be a lot of people shocked that go to hell instead of heaven that for a portion of their life called Jesus Lord. John chapter 10, Jesus made it really clear, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's he saying? I lay down my life. That's his death on the cross. I go to the cross. For the sheep. Now, are the sheep everyone? Is everyone a sheep? Is that his point there? Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Jesus knows his sheep in a different way than he knows those that are not his sheep. He lays down his life for them. Over and over and over he says this. Verse 16, verse 17. Listen to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's very simple. I love that our Lord speaks simply to us. I need that. That is before salvation, by the way. That's also salvation when it happens. And that's also the result of salvation. All three of those are in there. They hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Verse 28. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of of my hand. Now that's the entire life for these sheep. Who are the sheep? Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Who will believe in Jesus Christ? The sheep will. And Jesus died on the cross to make sure that that would happen. He is 100% successful in salvation. He didn't die to make it possible that some sheep might believe. In fact, verse 26, Jesus says this to some Jews gathered around him to mock him. He said this to those people, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Only the sheep will believe. And this is so clear, beloved. I believe Jesus knew that we would struggle understanding this. And so he just keeps repeating himself over and over and over again. And then the apostles do this in Romans eight thirty two. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, that is Jesus, over for us all. Who who is Jesus delivered over for? Us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who's the all? Every single person? Every single person who ever lived? Did God deliver Jesus over to the cross for every single person who ever lived? Is that our message? That Jesus died for you? Actually, our message is this. Jesus died for sin. Galatians 1.4 And if you believe, then he died for you. All throughout Romans 8, he says, us, 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 us. Verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verses 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us. From the life, that is from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Where is the love of God found? In Christ Jesus. How do you get that love? You have to get in Christ Jesus. How do you get in him? You have to believe. And now he actually tells us who the us is in Romans 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Verse 30, these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It is an airtight statement, an argument. Who are these people? Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? He tells us. So you see verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but delivered Jesus over for us all, all of the elect, every single one of them, that he might have 100% success On the cross, not one single drop of the blood of Christ is wasted on a person. I have two more points. I'm out of time. Boy, am I ambitious, right? Oh, I've always been that way. My eyes 
Mom used to say, your eyes are too big, you know, right? You know, as he, I approach dinner. Well, we'll have to see those two points. But I tell you the next time, but I tell you this. I hope you're understanding just how amazing our salvation is, how amazing the gospel is. It's his work. It needs to be his work. Listen, if, if it was up to you and me, we would not believe. And you know what? We, if we did, we would believe on our own terms. And as long as it worked for us, we're good. But as soon as life gets hard, oh boy, I'm thinking about hitting the eject button. But if it's him and his work and he saved you on the basis of what he did, he'll keep you. And we're going to talk about that in much more detail next Lord's Day. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, marvel at this incredible, tremendous salvation that we have, Lord, and we take no credit for it. And we just, we see there's logic to it, Lord. We see that it has sense. We see, Lord, that it comes from you, Lord, that full of uh, just uh, planning and but it's not just cold and calculated. It's full of your compassion and full of your grace and full of your mercy and your kindness that leads us to repentance. You know, we hear things like this, and and I I think maybe maybe so many of us. I know this is the true for me. Uh, it, all of these truths make me feel like a child, as I think to myself. I understand. I feel like so very little, but I believe it. And I thank you, Lord, for giving us Christ. And you didn't just give us some of him, but all of him, that we might have life. Thank you. May it be that if there are any here that have heard this message and are wondering about themselves, will you please do work in drawing them to bring them to you, Lord, to believe. And we give you the praise, the glory in doing this kind of work. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.